0: I'm Bob Weathers, really happy to have you with me today, really happy to be with you. Let me just say a word about myself and then where we'll be going uh, this next hour together. Um, I'm Dr. Bob. Uh, My uh, uh, PhD is in clinical psychology. Uh, My specialty for the last uh, 10 years has been in addiction and recovery, and uh, that's been coincidental with my own recovery from addiction. I got addicted in mid-adulthood, which is kind of an unusual trajectory, and uh, have, found, have found my way to recovery uh, for the last 10 years, and I'm uh, really committed to helping others uh, with what uh, I know um, uh, from my studies, but also what I know personally, and it's, it's the combination of those two that I think um, I want to bring to you today. So let me just say a word about where we'll be going, and uh, 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 really looking forward to our interaction. I have some material I'll be presenting for the next 20 minutes or so, and then we'll have a a break, about 10 minutes of question and answer. Austin and Franz are here producing today, and they're going to help me uh, field uh, your questions. I'll get to uh, your questions as I'm able. Uh, Probably we'll focus on questions that are excuse me, relevant to today's presentation. So we'll have an interaction for about 10 minutes and you can uh, you can submit your questions through the chat box, I guess the chat function. So uh, uh, we'll be getting to those and then I'll present some more information and then some more interaction. I actually look forward to the interaction as much as the presentation. So uh, we'll be guiding uh, the, the conversation through some PowerPoint slides and I'll be Um, elaborating on some of these. But let me give you an idea of the content where we'll be going. I'm just coming right now from Beginnings Treatment Center, and I lead two groups there uh, each week to uh, uh, young people, for the most part, who are in recovery from addiction. And I just came from from a group right now with the men. (laughs) It's an every Wednesday group. And the focus of these groups is what I call plural recovery. And the idea here is that that uh, there, as much as there's a focus in recovery on the individual's recovery, it's uh, absolutely instrumental to successful recovery for us to support one another. Those of us that are in recovery to support one another, ideally to engage our loved ones in that process, and all of us with the help of therapists and, and, and recovery staff. So I very much see recovery as happening in a community. And uh, in that spirit, then I want to talk about a couple of barriers to successful recovery, and then we'll be addressing these today. Um, There's a tremendous amount of stigma uh, in the world, including the U.S., uh, towards addiction. And it's very uh, common. In fact, it's uh, uh, hard not for the addict uh, who's active moving into recovery to internalize that stigma. And when that happens, that actually develops into what psychology calls shame. Actually, psychology calls it self-stigmatization, where I internalize the stigma from without. And so that shame uh, actually paralyzes forward movement. And the way that that manifests then in in, uh, personal relationships is that those of us that have been addicts, have uh, uh, harmed our relationships. And so the relationships have been uh, put through hell, basically, uh, as a function of the addiction. And so it's very understandable that loved ones would be frustrated, uh, mistrustful, and would be inclined to uh, express that through anger. Uh, underneath the anger is oftentimes deep frustration, deep sorrow, and uh, and, and and profound fear uh, insofar as addiction is... uh, Life-threatening, and so when somebody gets into recovery, there's no guarantee that suddenly everything's going to be rosy. In fact, oftentimes, uh, uh, being early in recovery will evoke uh, tons of of of, uh, polarization in relationships, and so here you have a double risk: you have a risk of the the addict moving into recovery, shaming him or herself, and and being uh, stuck. In that mode, which is basically a mode of self-loathing, self-judgment, self-blame. And then they're getting feedback, especially from those that love them, of mistrust and of anger. And so what to do about this? If shame and blame paralyze, good information frees. And so what I'm wanting to do today is the next slide. What I'm wanting to do today is to introduce some good information. And I'd like to introduce you to things that you may be aware of. Um, In some cases, you won't be aware of it. I'm wanting to give you the most up-to-date information on on the neuroscience of addiction, and I want to talk about it in understandable ways. We'll see how I succeed or not with that. I'll tell you something that that uh, is up this week for me. I was in the uh, grocery store earlier this week, and uh, this magazine was right there at the newsstand. I bought it. This is the, the latest National Geographic magazine. This is the month of September, uh, 2017. The focus of this issue, as you can see, is on the science of addiction. That's really what we'll be talking about today. I found it really striking that the magazine right next to it, which I believe was Newsweek, has the cover issue dealing with the opiate uh, epidemic, the addiction ep- epidemic. And so this is really up right now in terms of national awareness. And in that spirit, I want to address uh, uh, the science of addiction. Let me, uh, let me uh, introduce this by talking about all addictions. All addictions uh, involve the same changes in the brain. And I want to say a word about this is that uh, uh, much of my work uh, uh, is based in uh, substance addiction, so addiction to alcohol and other drugs, including nicotine. Um, uh, There's a recent study done in the last couple of years in which there was a survey done of US adults, and it was asking about behavioral addictions, so everything other than substance addictions, and this would be everything from uh, addiction to gambling, addiction to pornography, Uh, Addiction to work, addiction to uh, uh, overeating. And uh, in this survey, 90% of adults endorsed uh, having at least one behavioral addiction currently going on. And uh, as I've talked about this before, I think the other 10% either misunderstood the question or fibbed. (laughs) And I I mention this only because what I'm going to be talking about today focuses on addiction in the brain around drug addiction. But the actual physiological processes that um, underlie addiction are common across all addictions, substance addictions and behavioral addictions. And I think part of why I want to say this is I want to universalize this. I'm very committed to destigmatizing addiction as much as possible. And if we turn addiction into a human problem, I think that that gives us a leg up to where we're much more likely to, to support one another in something that's human. In fact, I like the etymology of the word addiction. It comes from the Latin root addictus, which basically is to be a slave. So addiction really is to be enslaved. So anything that you or I are enslaved to, be it drugs or behaviors, attitudes, there's even research being done on addiction to ideology, addiction to my ideas. Anything that I'm enslaved to limits my uh, my capacity to uh, relate to other human beings and actually to live out my potential so let's let's uh, let's make it as universal as possible in our understanding even though we may be focusing here specifically on drug addiction <clears throat> now there's three brain changes that you need to know when we talk about addiction next slide please oh thank you um, there's three brain changes and before I talk about the specific brain changes let me just say a word. These brain changes, these are changes in structure and function in the brain, not only are they directly a result of addiction, but they actually further contribute to addiction. In active addiction, the poor get poorer. Another way to say this is that there's a vicious cycle in the brain and it takes us down. And so any addiction uh, starts off in terms of having impact on uh, on the brain and that actually the impact it has on the brain, which we're going to elucidate now, that impact actually perpetuates the addiction. And so it truly is a vicious cycle. So let's talk about <coughs> brain change number one. The first change in the brain is the numbing of the pleasure response. <clears throat> There's an organ in the brain, it's small, it's in the midbrain, right between our ears, referred to as the nucleus accumbens. And this is really the pleasure center of the brain. And so the early research, and many of you have read this research, was done with laboratory mice where they would insert an electrode into the brain of a mouse, and in fact, insert it into the nucleus accumbens, give the mouse a lever. When they press the lever, it stimulates the nucleus accumbens. And guess what the mice did? they would stimulate the nucleus accumbens repetitively until they starved to death. In other words, it overrode the natural instinct to survive physically. In fact, uh, one research line looked at creating an electric grid underneath the, the mice. They would stimulate themselves even when they were subjected to torturous electric shock, it was, that, it was that much of an incentive. So this is the pleasure center of the brain. But we're talking about it getting numbed in addiction, and what does that mean? Our brains and our bodies incline towards homeostasis. Our brains and bodies want to be in balance. <clears throat> when you overstimulate the brain, whether it's through an electric electrode going into the nucleus accumbens, or with substances, and all of the substances uh, highly stimulate the nucleus accumbens, the, especially the initial liking, the initial pleasure. When that happens, the brain is thrown out of balance. The nucleus accumbens is overstimulated. And what it wants to do is to move back to homeostasis. That process is the second item that you'll see there in the slide. Allostasis is the process of moving the body and the brain back into homeostasis, back into balance. And so the, the, the brain will generate something to compensate, to to basically lower the level of overstimulation in the nucleus accumbens. I'll give you one example. There are multiple examples. The, uh, The chief stress hormone is cortisol. And when cortisol levels are increased in the brain and Uh, including the nucleus accumbens, they actually reduce the level of stimulation. And so the body creates a stress response, a cortisol response, in response to overstimulation of pleasure to get the body and the brain back into homeostasis. So in this case, you have increased cortisol. And so if you're taking a drug and cortisol comes in, it basically is beginning to uh, lose its impact because the uh, the brain is being... Uh, rebalance, reset to a a set point, a homeostatic set point, and guess what happens if you stop taking the substance? We're talking about substance addiction right now. Guess what happens if you stop taking that? The brain continues to be flooded by cortisol, and so you have all the symptoms that go with stress. So you have hyperventilation, sometimes cardiac uh, problems, certainly sweating, anxiety, And all of these are characteristic of withdrawal. In fact, what we just described is the process of withdrawal. That's why we withdraw. Our bodies are used to this balance, this allostatic balance coming by increased cortisol. Take away the substance, and all you're left with is cortisol. I had one client who said that she was barbecuing in her own adrenaline. That's not far off. That's not far off. So in essence, what happens around the pleasure response is that that's hijacked by the drugs. We'll come back to this theme here, is that the brain is hijacked by by substance, by drugs. And you'll look at the subtitle of this particular slide, Um, (coughs) there's a a term for a lowered pleasure response and uh, psychology refers to it as anhedonia. Uh, Certainly you've heard of the word hedonism or hedonist, somebody who seeks pleasure. And is the opposite of that. So anhedonism, hedonism, hedonic response, is the lack of pleasure. I just met with the gentleman in this group this afternoon, and I asked them about their experiences of this. It was universal. Every single person raised their hand, is that normally pleasurable activities, whether it be eating, socializing, even sex, eventually get reduced down to a level of not even creating an uptick in terms of a pleasurable response. And so What we discussed today, and which is true, is that uh, contrary to to popular opinion, uh, an addict fully in an active addiction is less likely getting high than just taking uh, drugs in order to try to get back to a homeostatic point. So it's basically to feel normal. And so there becomes actually less and less, it's ironic and sad, there becomes less and less drug-liking. Uh, uh, owing to the fact that there's a numbing of the response, and so the drug that may have been pleasurable weeks ago uh, loses its savor, and yet the the, the client, uh, the these clients, the the addict who's active in in his or her addiction will seek will seek out drugs not to get high, not to get elevated, just to get back to normal. So that's the first brain change that we want to discuss. Second brain change. <clears throat> The next brain change we're going to talk about is the increase in craving. I have to tell you guys a story. Last Friday, I went into the, the uh, 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 in, uh, gender-inclusive group that I lead on Fridays. I brought in this magazine. I looked at the group, about 20 clients, and I said, what do you guys know about the science of addiction? And the entire conversation, which was generated from the clients, was this particular brain change, which has to do with an increase in craving. So let's talk about that. The clients were quite knowledgeable about this, and you may be too. There's a brain structure referred to as the ventral, ventral tegmental area, the VTA for short, and it's associated with the production of a neurotransmitter in the brain, basically a messenger molecule in the brain called dopamine. Dopamine is a brain chemical that's associated with two things, and you'll see them written here, salience, and incentive. So let me tell you about both. Salience is just a fancy word for something that is salient is important to my survival. So for example, dopamine is associated with, the increased dopamine is associated with <clears throat> food, seeking food, it's associated with sex. I'll oftentimes ask the clients, why would sex be uh, related to survival? And they get this, is that uh, we have a biological imperative to perpetuate our genes. And that manifests itself through sexual propagation. And so sex really is essential to the continu- the continuation of our particular genetic line. And so on it goes. We have these normal dopamine responses to things that are important to us. Water, food, relationships. Uh, why would relationships kick up our dopamine level? We need each other to survive. And we're not that evolved beyond the cavemen where we literally need each other to survive uh, the saber-toothed tiger. If we hang together, we're better off. So that's salience uh, that's associated with dopamine. Incentive around dopamine, all that means is that when, when something is important, the incentive of dopamine, it drives us to seek to seek out whatever it is that's, that's important for survival. If it's food, for example, it drives us to food. <clears throat> now, there's a phenomenon in drug addiction that's referred to as, next slide, referred to as incentive sensitization. These are big words. Hang with me. What this means is that when I take drugs, I become more sensitized to the effect of the drugs than even to normal incentives, like the ones I just named, that are typically associated with survival. There's a researcher just up the way uh, here at UCLA, Dr. Richard Rawson, who's looked into dopamine levels and has compared dopamine levels across different brain states. So I just want to summarize these in order to emphasize how the brain gets sensitized. If right now (coughs) you're alert, Awake and alert. Let's say that your dopamine level is at a one. We'll just say a baseline of one. To give you an idea of how this goes in terms of proportion, sexual orgasm doubles that dopamine level, and so sexual orgasm will double that, which is uh, a, a major, a major leap. Um, um, and then I'll ask clients, I'll say, "Well, what do you think that cocaine does to dopamine levels?" And by now they know it actually quadruples that baseline which is to suggest that the level of dopamine that's, that's uh, uh, activated by, by cocaine is twice as powerful as sexual orgasm. <clears throat> and then I go on to say, how about heroin? Dr. Rawson has found that heroin uh, is, is, is a factor of 10, 10 times the baseline level of dopamine. And uh, the one that's the most extreme, you can see on the slide, is methamphetamine. It's 12 times the level. <clears throat> I always have a few clients that will comment, well, how about if we combine these? And almost always it's combining substance with sex. And they will vouch for this. In fact, somebody just mentioned this today. If sex is twice the level methamphetamine methamphetamines 12, 12, I think that I probably have gotten it to 24. And whether that's accurate or not, I'll leave that to the scientists to know. But these are additive. And so uh, any addict that's been deep in their addiction is oftentimes experimented with ways of combining different substances to increase the dopamine level. And so, and I should mention this, is that the VTA, the ventral tegmental area associated with dopamine, connects to the nucleus accumbens that we talked about earlier. And so this craving response is also connected to pleasure. And so they all get in there in kind of a a mishmash of of, uh, directing us to the substance. So can you just think for just a second of how is it that normal reinforcers like relationships, like food, like caring for our children, and so on. How can they possibly compete with a dopamine level that's 12 times the normal baseline level? And this is where you see examples then of horrible, horribly tragic situations where parents will neglect their children in favor of the substance because it it, it doesn't even compete. Uh, the natural, think of how deep the evolutionary response is to parent, something that can come in and actually uh, override that. Next slide. <clears throat> What happens in the brain is the dopamine with the increase of dopamine, which is directly related related to these spikes uh, that we just looked at, 12 times the level, it gets stored in our memory. And so basically the dopamine comes from the center of my brain. It goes up to the frontal cortex, the thinking part of my brain, and, and including in thinking is memory. And there are fibers that go just the opposite direction. They're associated with a chemical called glutamate, Glutamate locks in these memories of anything that's associated to the substance. Next slide. So the next time, for example, if you're a family member, the next time that you hear uh, someone in your life who's uh, even, even in recovery from addiction, much less somebody who's actively in addiction, you may have a better understanding of what they mean when they talk about triggers is that the brain is stored via glutamate. The brain has stored these spikes in memory. And so any cue that's associated with the addiction, hanging out with certain people, certain environments, a bar, um, the paraphernalia around substance, uh, certain smells, um, all of that uh, can serve to trigger this response. And it's associated with massive craving. It directs the addict to seek the substance. But I want to mention something here too, and that is another trigger that's easy to miss, is that the number one trigger for relapse is stress. And the number one stressor for most people is interpersonal stress. And so that's why when we talk about trying to get get, uh, the recovering individual uh, into some type of cooperative conversation with his or her uh, intimate uh, others, family, family, husbands, wives, brothers, fathers, mothers, etc. The importance of that is that stress itself will trigger a a craving response. And why is that? Because the substance will alleviate stress. And so what gets remembered is this substance, whether it's heroin or cocaine or alcohol, it will be associated with with the reduction of stress. So stress itself becomes an internal trigger for relapse. And so this is one of the, in fact, one of the things that I do in the groups I lead is that we'll oftentimes begin or end with a, uh, a period of mindfulness meditation. And its single purpose for me is self-regulation, to be able to lower the stress level and encourage clients to practice ways of managing their own stress. So let me make one final point, then we're going to open it up to um Dialogue with some questions. Uh, next slide. Just as with uh, our talking about the numbing of the pleasure response, there's a hijacking of the brain. So with uh, this brain change, the second brain change, the increase in craving, there's there's a hijacking of the brain where craving trumps willpower. And I'll summarize this very easily, very simply. I hope is that the the the. The structures that we're talking about are operating in the midbrain. They're what we refer to as subcortical. The frontal cortex is the part of us that makes decisions. It's actually the brakes of the brain. And the subcortex is sometimes referred to as the accelerator. And what you have when you have these kinds of dopamine spikes is you have a complete override of the frontal cortex and any ability to put brakes on this. And so the craving so so quickly and easily, so powerfully, will go into uh, using. And so all thoughts of willpower are, are kind of off the table uh, when this level of craving kicks in. So let me pause here. We'll come to a third brain change after we um, entertain a few questions. And I'm uh, ready to do that. Let me get a sip of water. We have one uh, respondent in the audience. I'm really happy to hear, see that you're here, Angela. And you asked the question, how can we support ourselves in facing our pain, recovering from addiction? It's a great question. Let me pause for a second. We talked about this in the group today before I came. <clears throat> the question I put to the group was, we had one member of the group, for example, who had... Um, uh, been through treatment, had gotten out, had a period of sobriety, relapsed, and is back in treatment. And I appreciate what he said. He said that he had a taste of what it's like to begin to feel normal again, sans substance. And uh, most of the people that I work with uh, in recovery have had various periods of sobriety where they get a get a sense of beginning to get back a natural homeostasis that's not guided by substance uh, in order to regulate the, the body. And so that's one one piece. He said it motivates him because he's had a feel for that and that's really what he desires. How do any of us that are in active addiction face the pain, the physical pain of withdrawal, and then after, after that uh, uh, um, moves through, we're left with oftentimes being very sensitized to pain, both physically and emotionally. One of the things that substance use does is it can anesthetize interpersonally related emotional pain, and then you take that away and then everything is loud. The volume's high and the valleys are deeper. I think there's a couple of things that come to mind. I think, uh, first of all, it's this is why it's so essential to have supportive uh, people in our lives. Uh, this is the value for me of, of, uh, of uh, any, any social program of support. This includes the 12-step programs, I'm involved in refuge recovery, which is mindfulness based. I'm also involved in AA, uh, also smart recovery. Any organizations that are that are able to provide support where you have people that know what you're going through and can sub- provide support without judgment, I think that that can be really important. Psychology calls it co-regulation. Is that I can do all I want to do in terms of yoga, meditation and other ways of managing, lowering my stress as much as possible. But if I ignore the relational dimension, I ignore how much it is that we inform one another in relationship so that I can meditate till the cows come home. But if I have a stressful primary relationship, it will oftentimes trump whatever it is I'm doing. And um, I'll sometimes ask clients, I'll, I'll say, where's the brain located? And we'll all say it's inside our head. And I'll say, that's true. But uh, in, the, in, in uh, recent years with brain scan technology, what's also being discovered is that another person, especially somebody significant to us, their emotional state and their ability to tune into us, that becomes very much something that's informing our brain and it shows up in brain scans. To be in the presence of an understanding or a soothing other actually affects our brain function uh, in the moment, and over time, actually begins to affect brain structure. It's pretty crazy, and so there's a way that yeah, our brains are inside our heads. There's also another way that we share brains, that we share brains, and that uh, and that's really the idea of co-regulation. So, how can we support ourselves in facing our pain? I think we can do what we can to. Uh, 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 Put all of, as much energy as we can into reducing our own stress levels. That's one piece. And I think also uh, to be with uh, empathic, supportive, compassionate others, it's a way of, of um, the image that comes to my mind uh, over the years is um, having been to the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris a couple of times across my life. There are these huge flying buttresses that hold up the huge walls of this Gothic cathedral. And I think of these relationships as flying buttresses that they help hold me up. And so as as important as as it is for me in recovery to take full responsibility for my individual recovery, I think it's equally important that I seek out, cultivate, and do all I can to sustain healthful relationships in terms of uh, uh, supporting my recovery make one other comment on this question, and that is, is, I think it's part of the importance, and I actually, I'll tell you what I did today with the group, As we were reviewing uh, what happens to the brain in addiction. After each one of these changes, I reviewed these uh, changes today with the group. It's the first time I presented this material was to the group. They were my guinea pigs. I asked the group, I said, why is it important that your loved ones understand this change and we, we address that with each one of the changes that I've discussed, and, and and so I wanted to go. The idea that came out very clearly is that if my loved ones understood what's going on in my brain, both in the past in terms of active addiction, but also in terms of now in, in early recovery, it might help a lot in terms of being able to kind of contain the anxiety or the frustration or the anger. And so I really do think it's important that there be education given to all parties that are related to the addiction. This is why I think it's a plural process. I don't think it's enough for addicts to become educated and to understand. I think it's really important that their loved ones be too. So that's a start on the question and we can come back to to, uh, further ramifications as we go on. We'll talk about the, the third brain change. These may be obvious to you as I'm talking about them, I want to tell you that I woke up in the night last night, and I was thinking about today's presentation, and I wanted to, um, what I wanted to do was to know what I'm speaking of today. I want to learn it by heart, and I don't think it's just for me. I think it's really important that, I feel like it's really critical that that people that are uh, in recovery from addiction that we have clear understanding of what's going on with our addiction for a couple of reasons. One is I've already talked about, which is that shame will sink me. And I think the good information is an effective antidote to a lot of that shame. Secondly, I think that good information about what happens to the brain addiction can be hugely motivating. I know that it has been for me. I remember being in detox from my own addictions and having a psychiatrist on the floor present about my particular addiction and talk about the, the uh, what happens in the brain around that addiction. And it was startling, informing, and highly motivating for me, the good good information, because, frankly, I didn't want to keep doing this to my brain. And so the next change that we're talking about decrease in impulse control, you might have kind of a, <coughs> a well duh response to that. But hang with it for a second. If I can remember, if I can understand as an addict, uh, in recovery, if I can understand as the loved one of a person who's in recovery from addiction, that there are three brain changes that I need to remember. One is the, the numbing of the normal pleasure response. And so that's going to manifest as a kind of low-level depression. It actually may look like the addict uh, in recovery is, is relapsing. The fact is their brain will reset, but it takes sometimes months and months for that brain to reset or normal pleasures begin to rise up again. And so that's an important fact that I need to know. A second one is there's going to be an increase in craving owing to uh, 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 repeated use of a, of a drug. And what that means is that if the cues in that person's outer world, as well as stressors inside, are going to evoke a response. It's very hard for somebody who's not been addicted to understand the power of the cravings. Uh, I, I remember uh, Dr. Kevin McCauley talking about this. Is that an addict can say no, an addict can stop using. But he says that what an addict can't do is an addict cannot say no to craving. You can't stop craving. Why is that? We've already established it. Craving comes from the subcortex. And so the cortex doesn't have direct access to this. And in fact, what you might want to put it in a different language is that craving is unconscious, it's automatic. And we have to create an environment in which we reduce the opportunities for having our craving triggered. But having said that, the the, the the triggers are powerful. So understanding the increase in craving is really important. And the same with this, the decrease in impulse control. Let's talk about it. We've already talked about the prefrontal cortex. That the, that's the front of our, our brains. That it's involved in the, the, it's called the executive system of the brain. It's involved in moral decision-making. It's, it's uh, involved in using good judgment. It's certainly central to impulse control. Now, what happens in the prefrontal cortex? Next slide. What happens in the prefrontal cortex with uh, with active addiction? We develop what addictionologists call hypofrontality. Frontality, the front part of the brain, hypo, underneath or beneath. Basically, we have uh, uh, the loss of control of the frontal lobes, and what guides the show is the the, what's underneath the frontal cortex, which is the subcortex or the uh, the uh, reward center of the brain, and we've already talked about this image. If my frontal cortex, if your frontal cortex is what is able to say no, it's the it's the brakes of the brain, and you remove that, all you're left with is it with an accelerator. And so, as I asked the group today that we met. To discuss this, we talked about various examples of impulse control problems, including early in recovery. I'll give you one example that came up, is that virtually every member of the group raised their hand when I asked, do you have problems with irritability and anger that are, uh, in your view, exacerbated, made worse by your addiction and or by being early in early recovery? Every single person raised their hands. And one way to understand that is that the impulse control, the ability to control angry uh, uh, behavior, is, uh, is lessened significantly, if not completely nullified, by this phenomenon of hypofrontality. Next slide. So, once again, what we have is a hijacking of the brain. In this case, the, sur- the subcortex. The, the, the craving part of the brain, the pleasure sensors of the brain, they are so powerfully engaged, 12 times the normal level, nothing can compete with that, so that they end up overriding or negating the cortex. There's an exercise that I do with the, the, the group on Fridays, is that as we're talking about these various brain changes, I'll open it up for discussion where, where uh, uh, clients will journal, and then they'll, they'll meet in twosomes. And then we'll debrief as a larger group. And I'll ask questions about how do each of these brain changes show up in relationship. I've already given an example right now with a decrease in impulse control. One example for sure is that I'm going to be much more inclined to fly off the handle because I don't have the ability to put brakes on angry impulses. And I think it can be enormously helpful to inform significant others in relationships that this is to be expected. I looked at, there was a gentleman sitting next to me today, and I said, what's the value of of all of this? And he said, maybe the people in our lives could learn to take it slightly less personally when I am not myself, when I've got a bit of a numbed response, so I'm not jovial or particularly loving. Again, this isn't to excuse the behavior, but it's to understand it and to work with it because there is improvement. I've got another measure that I use, and I've shared this with with clients that I work with. It's a measure of post-acute withdrawal syndrome, the symptoms that once uh, once I've recovered from acute withdrawal, that is the physical symptoms of withdrawal, I'm left sometimes for weeks or even months with symptoms of irritability, numbed pleasure response, um, hypersensitivity to trigger uh, cues and so on. And there's a way of tracking that, and i created just a little measure, a way of tracking that. Um, the image I use is this. Maybe some of you experienced this. I didn't, but I saw friends did, where their parents would track their their growth uh, in height on like a door jamb. And so they would maybe once every six months or a year write down how tall Johnny or Susie was, and then they'd come back a little bit later, and there'll be these various marks across the door jamb. And it's impossible even for a parent to notice in real-time day-to-day growth um, uh, 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 in that kind of more molecular level. But if you can step back and come back in and measure it, you can begin to, you can begin to see the changes. So it's being able to step back and have an objective indicator, I feel like that around measuring progress and recovery. Clients won't believe it when I say that you're not going to feel the same in a month if you're, if you're completely clean and sober. And in six months, you're going to be unrecognizable to yourself in terms of where you are right now. But if we have clients track this and we have loved ones track this, and then we share notes about how that's going, it really helps to see, like on a door gym, it really helps to see that there's progress being made across these various brain changes. Thank goodness there's a a, uh, phenomenon called neuroplasticity, and that is that the brain is plastic, which is shorthand for the brain is very flexible. And so... We can incur a fair bit of damage to our brains, and we've talked about that in terms of brain function and even brain structure with addiction, and the brain will heal itself most often. There are exceptions to that, but most often it will heal itself. Clients will say, how long will it take me, Dr. Bob? And I'll say, well, there's a number of factors that go into that. Uh, one, it has to do with the the, the uh, amount that you've abused of drugs in the case of drugs, what drugs... Uh, what was the uh, the uh, amount you used how frequently did you do that how long did you do it these are factors that figure into how long it's going to take to recover there's also individual differences between men and women between body types there's also genetic differences that are just inborn and so there's no way to know as if from God's perspective, how long it's going to take for somebody. But given time and given commitment to uh, serious sobriety, the brain will most often recover functions. That's the encouraging piece. The clients that I work with are already in early recovery, and the key is not to stopping because they've already stopped using the drugs. The key is to support their sustaining the sobriety. And this gets back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of Giving clients as many tools as possible for self-regulation, to be able to manage, back to the question that Angela gave, to be able to manage the pain that comes up, physical pain, emotional pain, to manage cravings, all of that. There's a lot that can be done in terms of regulating oneself, and that's not enough, is that we need support. And so the support can come. I look at the clients that I see, and I say, you guys need to support each other. If no one else understands what's going on with your addiction, at least you do. And the first thing you can do is stop judging yourselves and stop judging one another and really reach out and support one another. And they get that, is that we need each other, that it takes a village to heal um, uh, from addiction. And so the key is to get support, it seems like to me. Next slide. There is some good news. In fact, it's interesting today in the group that I led. I started off by talking about the numbing of the pleasure response, and we we talked about that at some length, at the end of which I said, could we make this any more depressing? Um, The impact of addiction and looking at it squarely in the face is very sobering, no pun intended. It's very uh, grave. And to talk into that and really hold that feeling is hard. It's hard to do that. Um, and I talked earlier about the vicious cycle where the poor get poorer with addiction. There is good news is that in committed recovery, the rich get richer and you get this kind of um, exponential growth as that as, as my brain, my body, my relationships heal, there, there actually is a synergy that's involved where I get better. It's not, a, it's not a gradual slope. It's actually a steep slope if I'm really committed to recovery. Next slope. Next slope. Next uh, Next uh, slide. If, if, if the previous slide talked about a vicious cycle, I think there's a different way we can look at this, and I'm very encouraged by this. In fact, I talk to people that work in the field that I work in. I work as a recovery coach, and people that work in this field as therapists, uh, recovery workers, coaches like me, it's very gratifying. And I'll tell you why, is the results come quickly. Is that with committed recovery, this adaptive spiral, the changes begin to add to themselves, and it's amazing to me. It's amazing from one week to the next in the treatment center where I work at Beginnings. I, I saw somebody last week who was who had dull eyes. He came in today, and he actually came up to me and said, "Hi, Dr. Bob," and I. Sc- Hardly remembered him, and you know why? His vitality was so different than it was last week that he was almost unrecognizable to me. That's how quickly things can stabilize for somebody. The key, of course, is to sustain this. Next slide, final slide. The good news that there's is that there's hope. Um, I know that uh, Austin, you and France have a have a number where people can call to get more information. I want to put my website up here, only be, uh, for further resources. I've got a ton of uh, of uh blog posts and there are people who are involved in the various communities I'm involved in who post and we interact with one another. I've put those on my I have a brand new website. I also have a number of podcasts that are up on on my website and those are all uh, information those are freely given. I have scores of podcasts that I want to upload and it's just going to be a matter <laughs> Time to get them up and up. And my my wish is that you would have access, that you that your uh, family, that your friends would have access to good information. And this is one place to start. Is you can go there and roam around and see what's available there. I also have um, reference lists and bibliographies available on my website, or you can also. My email address is on my website, you can write to me. I'm very committed to disseminating what I feel like is solid, uh, uh, good information. It occurred to me this, uh, uh, actually this got clarified for me last night. It's so many of the attitudes culturally, we live in a society, I should just say this, there was a study done in the last year or two by the World Health Organization that looks at their classification of all diseases. And they examined the correlation between those diseases and stigma. This is a worldwide study. Do you know what was the most stigmatized disease of all? I'm talking about every physical disease you can imagine, and then include every so-called mental disorder. So this would include anxieties, depressions, thought disorders like schizophrenia, autism, anything that represents a disease. The disease, uh, it's classified as a disease, addiction, was the the most stigmatized disease worldwide. And so it's not just a U.S. phenomenon, it's a worldwide phenomenon. And so I got to thinking about this in the last week. It's been a week that I've been thinking about this. And the last night it got clarified for me, is that most attitudes about addiction are based in pre-scientific understandings. Is that what's happened in the last 20 years, particularly with brain scan technology, has revolutionized our understanding. I couldn't be talking about any of this. I started graduate school 35 years ago. None of what I talked about today was even available. In fact, I started graduate school by taking two courses on uh, neuroanatomy and neurophysiology. None of what we talked about today was available because we didn't have access to the brain in real time that we have now, for example, with functional MRIs and other kinds of scans. And so most of the public's understanding of addiction is pre-scientific. It's certainly pre-brain scan. Much of people's understanding of addiction is pre-psychological. There have been advancements in psychology in the last, um, I want to say the last half a century. Developmental studies, I'm, I'm a big proponent of attachment theory that looks at the impact of relationships uh, and, and trauma to those relationships, the impact that it has on our brain. I, I do have to say this much, is that virtually 100% of the population that's clinically addicted uh, is has been uh, significantly traumatized in their developmental years. There are exceptions to that; those exceptions prove the rule. So it's just to say that psychology, uh, our relationships, which are referred to in psychology as attachment relationships, those relationships are primary in terms of either providing resilience in the face of of uh, temptations, um, uh, drives to use drugs to alter consciousness, and trauma is almost guaranteed. Uh, Lasting developmental trauma is almost guaranteed to lead to addictive behaviors, and so most of the public's understanding of addiction is not only pre-scientific in terms of brain scans, it's pre-psychological in terms of the uh, incredible amount of attachment research that's come out that's related to trauma theory. And then one final piece that came to me last night, this was my epiphany in the night, you guys is that our, most of our understanding of, 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 of substance is, uh, has been formed by, um, by the war on drugs. I was in high school when the war on drugs was announced. It was during uh, President Nixon's administration. And so that was the beginning of our, our criminalizing drugs at a level that's unprecedented, enough so that right now our prison systems, if I understand it, 80% of those in prison in the United States are there because of drug-related offenses. They were either uh, high, uh, selling drugs, or seeking drugs, and um, that's unprecedented. So we have, the, I think, the highest uh, uh, percentage of incarcerated people in the world in our nation. And... of them are there because of drugs, and that's really a function of of our criminalization and the war on drugs. I don't think there's any easy solution to that whole issue of decriminalizing or not. But I do want to say that our understanding of drugs is is so couched in a society that that looks at uh, uh, addiction from a legal perspective rather than a biological, medical, or psychological perspective. And so, I wanna get out information that will help us, help those of us that are in recovery to um, unshame ourselves, to help uh, those of us that are loved ones of those in addiction, to find uh, find out information that will help us understand what has been catastrophic and painful to ourselves. Let me recommend one resource on my website. It's a video of a co-presentation I did with my wife, Colleen Kelly, that looks at relationships and uh, addiction recovery. And it'll give you an example of how to integrate relationships and how best uh, for therapists to do that, how best for loved ones to engage in uh, their own uh, support, their own help, along the way of supporting the people in their lives that are recovering from addiction. So that's a real resource. There'll be more to come. I've got a book coming out with my wife uh, by the end of this year called Plural Recovery. And it's really... Uh, Meant to be a shame-free guide to recovery, not only for addicts who are seeking recovery, but also for their loved ones. Um, It's how central it is that our loved ones are to supporting us and uh, how challenged that is by all of the pain that our loved ones have been through. So let me leave it with that for right now and see if there's another question, I think, Austin. There's two questions. Let's do our best to do this. We've got about 10 minutes. Mo has asked a question. I know, Mo. It's great to hear from you. He asks, is it accurate to say that addiction is an acquired disease and never inherited? Thank you for asking that, Mo. In fact, it's not accurate. (laughs) My understanding of the latest in science is that 40 to 60 percent of addiction is heritable. That is to say, in twin studies and other ways of researching this out, is that the, <clears throat> the genetic loading on addiction is that high? 40 to 60% of addiction is attributable to, to genetics. Um, some people will say, well, then there's no hope uh, because of genetics. I personally come from a family where addiction was was uh, uh, ubiquitous. And so, is there any hope for me? Well, that leaves the other 40 to 60% that's not inherited. And I feel like that that's where the leverage is. Um, one thing I know for myself is that coming from a family where addiction, uh, there was a huge vulnerability to addiction across the entire family, including multiple generations and uh, first and second cousins all the way out and so on, is that I know that for myself, this is after the fact that I was never a good candidate for uh, for alcohol use or experimenting with other drugs. There's There's such a genetic loading is that for example, one example, Mo, is that there are what are referred to as genetic low responders. So, for example, somebody can be a genetic low responder to alcohol. What does that mean? That means that person can drink more alcohol and not uh, be as inebriated as their neighbor who, who just drank the same amount. Um, it's really kind of bad news, bad news, because that that means that that person is going to drink more to get intoxicated, and in fact, they will then be incurring more damage because the, chemi- the chemicals, whether it's alcohol or another drug, will be having their corrosive impact on the brain and the body, and that person is even high to experience that. And so there's a high correlation between those that are genetic, notice I say genetic low responders, and, um, and, and those that, that are prone to addiction. That'd be one example. So there's a very high high genetic inheritance factor in this. Uh, I make my living on capitalizing on the other 40 to sixty percent that we can work with, and that is um, th- that's all of what we've been talking about in terms of of interventions, whether it be medical interventions or psychological interventions, social interventions, et cetera So that's a start mo you have there's a second question here: how can we educate the public about addiction? Voila. <laughs> I really take it as a mission to teach the young people that I'm working with in recovery from addiction to become literate. I mean, literally today from this group that we led, the clients left that group knowing that there are three brain changes. And if we rehearse that enough, it will, I'll tell you, because I mentioned it earlier, when I went into Friday's group and asked the group, tell me what you know from the science of addiction, they were teaching about dopamine, the dopamine system, and what happens to craving. They were teaching that in a way that if I'd had one lecture in graduate school that was that articulate, uh, that would have made all the difference for me, both in terms of my work as a psychologist in my previous life, as well as probably would have informed my own proneness to addiction. And so I think it starts with clients becoming literate. I feel like it's very imperative, really important that... that um, that we reach out to loved ones and inform them. Um, I wanna say a word about therapists and training. I went through graduate school, uh, uh, six year graduate program, doctoral program in clinical psychology. I had one lecture on addiction in six years of graduate school. Now the crazy part of this, and that's shocking, the crazy, part, and I've talked to physicians that say the same thing. Many of them don't have a single course, they might have a lecture. That's gradually changing. Here's the crazy part is that a recent, uh, recent study established that up to 50% of clients that come in to see a therapist are actively addicted, and that's to uh, alcohol and other drugs. I'm not talking about behavioral addictions. It isn't to say that clients coming in will talk about that. Most often, in my experience, clients won't talk about their addiction. They'll talk about a parenting issue or, or a marriage problem or a conflict at work and what will come out over time is is a substance addiction and so you see the irony there the the misfit between so i got one lecture on addiction in six years of graduate school and half the clients i see coming in to see me are clinically addicted and so that's that's in need of being remediated so a, a big part of my mission is also to reach out to uh, clinicians recovery staff and i uh, really highly value that but i think anybody that's here today as a part of this live stream you take this information and you take this out to people that you know and you begin to disseminate this. Um, uh, we're, this today is a pilot. It's a pilot for our live stream. The intention is that we will build this into a weekly live stream. There will be more information that we'll be providing, more dialogue, more questions. But my sense of this is that it's um, that it's additive. If you can just begin to build blocks of understanding around addiction, I really do believe, I don't think that, that – We've already established that, that cognitive understanding isn't sufficient to stop me from being addicted because once I'm addicted, most of what's guiding that behavior is precognitive or preconscious or um, reflexive. It's subcortical. Having said that, I think good information can be very motivating for clients that are seeking recovery from addiction. It was for me and also can be uh, really important in terms of establishing um, a a neutral language, a more neutral language for loved ones working with uh, their family members and loved ones who are recovering. In fact, let me say a word about that before we finish up. There's this idea. Okay, there's one more question. Uh, There's this idea in marriage and family therapy that one of the keys to helping a, I'll talk about a married couple. One of the keys to help a couple deal with conflict is to move out from polarizing one another. How many times have I seen couples where they'll come in and say, uh, let's say, a wife and a husband, the wife says, Harvey is the person without which, without whom I would be perfectly happy. Otherwise, I'm perfectly happy. In fact, I don't argue with anybody except for Harvey. And uh, my response is measured to that. But the thought behind my response is, of course, that's the case, because our central conflicts are going to be evoked with those that we're closest to. And that's the way that it goes. And so we do, we, we begin to polarize in relationships. And one of the key axioms of marriage and uh, family therapy is to find some way to externalize the problem move move the problem from being harvey in the relationship and in the case of addiction begin to understand addiction as uh, as a problem external to the relationship that the two can come together and fight and so i think that begins with really solid information about understanding what addiction is how it infects a relationship and then beginning to untangle that together uh, there's one more question, I think, and then we'll be wrapping up. Christina asks, Hi, Christina. What would you say uh, about how an addict can best rebuild their dopamine system? That's interesting that you would ask that question because right at the end of the group today, one of uh, a member came in. He had been in a counseling session. He came in just the last five minutes. And, he's, and he, he caught just the very tail end of our conversation. He asked me that same question, Christina. And I said, well, we'll have to come back to that in our next group meeting. I asked the group today. He wasn't there. This uh, last group member wasn't there. I asked the group today. I, I said that if what we've said here is true, that is to say that the dopamine system is so amplified beyond uh, normal limits with the various substances that, that we've all been addicted to, what can possibly compete with that? And I asked a different question related to that. How can we possibly hang in there through this period of anhedonia where everything is numbed out and nothing uh, nothing is pleasurable and everything is triggering us? And I went around the group, people people answered with uh, in various ways and every answer was right. One person talked about substituting what he used to do with drugs with jumping out of airplanes on a parachute. That would not be my first choice, but that's certainly going to stir some dopamine, is my guess. For me, it would be pure cortisol. Another person talked about um, uh, what it would be like to begin to connect again in a normal way with with loved ones. Another person talked about, I want to fulfill my destiny. I want to I live out why I'm on this planet. Another person said, I want not to kill myself. I want not to die. And so there's a whole spate of answers. Literally, we had the whole room shared answers. But the common thread there is that if I can hang on, it's like Ulysses being tied to the mast. If he can be tied to the mast and somebody plug his ear with, with wax, he might make it through the straits with the sirens, the triggers singing so sweetly. In order to hang on, the early days of recovery are really rugged because the body is so inclined towards relapse. But if you can make it through that time and then begin to establish uh, a relationship to things that have been reinforcing before or maybe develop new ways of being reinforced, I always key into relationships because we're wired to be social. And for most addicts, Uh, That social connection and the reinforcement it provides, including in the pleasure center as well as the dopamine system, it's gotten numbed out. We've already talked about that. And so it's to allow that to begin to rise organically, but it really requires turning down the volume. And the only way to turn down the volume that I know of is to abstain from the substance, and that requires being tied to a mast. And so you ask, how can an addict best rebuild their dopamine system? I would start by having realistic expectations and a lot of patience. I think it's really important to develop physical habits such as physical exercise, rest, good nutrition. I think it's really important to root out psychological trauma that may may be a stimulus for relapse for me. I think it's very important to connect to others. Uh, we haven't talked much about it here, but I think it's really important to develop one's spirituality, and I think of spirituality in terms of really identifying and cultivating one's value, one's meaning, one's purpose for life. We talked about it in today's group, and I think it's really important to have helpmates along the way. It can be a coach or a guide. Uh, trusted family members. It can be a minister. It can be anybody that that understands it. I think it's really important to associate with those that are going through what you're going through and maybe a couple steps ahead of you. I think this is the wisdom in the 12-step programs of sponsorship. I think all of that will help rebuild a dopamine system to be able to adapt to more normal levels of stimulation. And eventually, those things that lost salience, that lost importance, that lost reinforcement, those will come again. I'll finish with this. The one client that I mentioned earlier who talked about being out and having been sober for a period of time, he talked to the group, and I thought it was really propitious. He talked to the group about how good it felt to begin to feel his life coming back on board. And he's sorrowful and feels some real guilt around having having, uh, relapsed. But he hasn't forgotten what it felt like to begin to get terra firma underneath his feet. And he wants that again. I thought it was beautiful that he was there in the group. And that's everyone's birthright i want to thank all of you for being here today with me i really appreciate your engagement your attention and i look forward to our meeting again i'll be putting out an announcement uh, with austin and france's help i want to thank austin armstrong and Franz salvatierra our two producers for helping uh, with this today thank all of you for joining in more to follow